Have you ever been involved with something where you know it so well, you know it so deeply, it's in your bones? That's what I was feeling when Andy Milberg and I sat down for our conversation. He's been in this work, he knows the process so deeply, the ins and outs. He knew Bob for years, trained with him. And so I hope you enjoy this episode as Andy reflects on his life, reflects on his life teaching the Hoffman process. Such good stuff here. Please enjoy. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Andy Milberg, great to have you on the podcast today. How you doing? I'm doing great, Drew. Where are you talking to me from? I am speaking to you from uh, Ajijic, Mexico, which is a little village on the north shore of the largest lake in Mexico, about an hour from downtown Guadalajara, which is the second largest city in Mexico. How did you get there? Well, I lived in Petaluma for a long time. And then four years ago, my wife and I visited here and loved it and decided we would uh, go on an adventure since we're in our 70s and maybe it's the last adventure. We wanted it to be a good one. So we moved down here. Fantastic. Uh, Speaking of adventures, you've been a Hoffman Process teacher since January of 1991. 31 and a half years. Is that right? That's correct. And it's been quite an adventure in many ways. And um, when you were living in Petaluma and you heard about the process, you trained with Bob. Was Bob in your process as a teacher? He was. I wasn't living in Petaluma at that time, but uh, Bob was in my process as a teacher. And given my patterns, I was yelling at him within an hour of the process starting, whereupon he uh, pointed some things out to me in his unique style, and I settled down and got the work. Bob did have that unique way of confronting with love, didn't he? How would you describe his style? One, One word I would use is fearless. Fearless and totally committed to helping people get free of their their patterning. Wow. Andy, how many processes have you taught over those 31 and a half years? Do you know? Uh, It's in the the low 200s, I think. I'm not sure at this point. What's it like to be a Hoffman teacher? Incredibly general question, but what is it like? The first word that comes up for me, it's, it's actually a privilege and an honor to be able to stand with, support, guide, our students who are making a tremendous commitment in time, money, energy to to change since our our tagline is when you're serious about change. So, you know, I know that when they get to the process, 
they have made a serious commitment in preparing. And I'm going to do everything I can to support them in getting at least what they think they want out of the process. And the reason I say that is because most of the time find that people get more than they, they think they're going to get, more than they expect, and more that they even know they want. I want to ask a question about that because I agree. It does seem like they get more than they even thought that they could even put into their consciousness. Why do you think that is? That's a really interesting question, Drew. The, the process for me is and has always been a combination of, uh, I'll say, science and I'm not sure which word to use, magic or mysticism. It is grounded in science, which has been confirmed over the, what, 55 years since, we, since it started. But the other part is, is hard to explain how the, uh, the structure of the process supports things that I cannot understand at times. And also that I, as a teacher, sometimes can show up in a way that is not something I've thought about rationally or I'm planning or strategizing. It's just the, it, the magic of the moment that allows openings for the students and breakthroughs. And dare I say, and I use this word a little bit cautiously, dare I say miracles. I'm thinking of one student who came in, a young man who was about 28, came in tattooed, spiky red hair. I'm depressed. That's who I am. And at some point in the process, that identity, that false identity, that false self just dropped off and an energy and a light came through him that persists because even after the process, he's continued to do coaching with me. I think it's about a year and a half now. And that was totally unpredictable to me in meeting him and supporting him the first couple of days of the process. So to me, that's a miracle. That's pretty cool. You've got your trio of M's, magic, mysticism, and miracles. <laughs> wow. Miracles, yeah. But meanwhile, it's all grounded in science and psychological theory. That, part, that part's really clear. It's the, spirit, the spiritual aspect that, that, to me, is the mystery, the magic, and produces miracles. And spiritual, I, I don't even know what that is. I say the word, and, you know, where does it come from? What's the connection? All I know is it exists. I have seen it over and over again. It was something I was very skeptical about when I, when I did the process as a student, given my family patterns around spirituality. And, you know, to me, the, the evidence is inexplicable, but real, very real in terms of the effects on people and impact. Andy, you mentioned your family childhood patterns around spirituality. Take us to your childhood and you growing up. Where did you grow up? What did you learn? What was unique to your childhood? So I was born uh, in, in New York City, and my family lived outside of New York City in a, a suburban community. 
lived there till I was eight. And then my father decided to move the family down to Puerto Rico to open up a factory because the, the tax laws were beneficial back then. So I went to the rest, I went to grammar school, junior high and high school in Puerto Rico, graduated in 1966 and then went to Tulane University in New Orleans uh, and got my BA in 1970 in English literature and psychology. For a few years after that, I was dealing with the draft and then, then uh, started law school in 1972. But my family, my pattern at that time was not to complete things. So I left and went into business with somebody I met and we, uh, we had an accelerated learning and reading program. So I was in the education business for about four years, and that started to get successful, which triggered some more of my patterns around sabotaging success. So I just took off and headed out to California in 1979 on a three-week trip that turned into a six-month trip, and then went back to New Orleans, packed up my stuff, and headed out west. And I was mostly out west ever since then. When did you begin working at Hoffman. I know you were in the enrollment office for years. Well, I was a teacher for a long time. And then there were some changes in the enrollment department and there, there was a need for enrollment counselors. So I said, well, let me, uh, let me try this. And Liza was open to it. And I came in and at that time, that was 2012, there were just three of us in the enrollment, on the enrollment team. And we worked pretty hard and we had a lot of fun and, and it was great being in the office and supporting people who were interested in learning about the process, helping them if they wanted to enroll, helping them prepare. And then also at times getting back into, you know, getting into teaching people that I'd enrolled. So that was a fun for a couple of years, but I, I don't feel like I'm the office type. So nine to five was not what I loved. When I had a chance to teach more, when there was a need for me to teach more, I definitely took it and uh, was full-time for a few years. And then the last few years, since I turned, I guess, 70, I've been reducing my teaching load. What did being a teacher for so many years and then in the enrollment office, how did that change your vantage point on, on the process? I don't know that it did, except that I just had a different relationship with the students because I, I, I knew a little bit more about how they got to the process and what it took for them to get to the process. So that might have contributed to holding the students with even more honor and respect than I had before. But at, it, since the beginning, since the beginning of my teaching, it was always students first. You know, The fact that they, they were, like I said earlier, committing so much time, energy, money, et cetera, to doing the work. I was there to support them to do it, to get the most out of it. And how have you seen Hoffman change over the years? You've been so intimately involved since 1991. And as a nonprofit and as a small organization, especially in the last 10 years, it's grown so much. What have you noticed? Well, that's a fascinating journey to consider because when I became, when I started training, I think there were six teachers and Bob was actually preparing to retire at that time. So I got the joy and terror of training with him. It was a very small organization. Processes were between 10 and 15 students for the most part. 
then a few years later, they started to go over 20. And then we, we started training more teachers. Uh, we became a nonprofit in, I believe, 1998 or so. And then, the, like you say, the enrollments really exploded in the last 10 years to where processes at White Sulphur Springs before it burned down were, were full at 40 with a wait list. And now at our new center, we're full at 32 with a six-month wait list. And as far as number of teachers, what, we're over 30 now or something? It's going to be over 30 teachers next year. So the organization really changed from a, a small, I'd say, intimate group where I taught with the same people very, very often. In fact, one of the things in the beginning, there were, there were usually three teacher teams, and it was one man and two women, because most of the, the teachers were women. So I learned a lot in those first few years sitting around the dining room table. I learned a lot about scarves and shoes and accessories from the female teachers. <laughs> good exposure, good education. More, more than I wanted to know, considering we, spent, we have 21 meals together. It is quite a thing to break bread with your colleagues as often as we do, as you mentioned, 21 meals together. How has that journey been for you in the colleague world of being a teacher? Well, for the most part, it is, it's wonderful that we're all aligned with doing work that, that's important to us, that we believe in, that's contributing to a, uh, hopefully contributing to a better world. You know, Bob's mission was peace on earth, one person at a time. And so the impact that the process could have, and I don't say that we, the teachers do that, but the process has on the world is, is what holds us all aligned. And yet there are, you know, personalities involved sometimes. So uh, this is not personal to any of my colleagues who I love, but by the end of the week, I'm really looking forward to some quiet time. I think that's my introvert side that comes out by the end of the week. I was thinking that it, most of us are extroverts, a few are introverts, but for introverts, it must be a little more challenging given there's so much output and interaction with other people. Yes. And one of the things I realized uh, since I became a teacher is that I had patterns of being an extrovert. And that as I release those and I've gotten older, I've become more introverted. And I still have the skills of an extrovert in terms of you know what I need to teach and to, to participate. But as I said earlier, Drew, but by the end of the week, I'm really looking forward to quiet. I love that you're you're digging into introversion and extroversion because when you say patterns of an extrovert, will you say a bit more about that? Yeah, you asked me about growing up and in my family there was a, a very strong external orientation, social orientation, image orientation. You know, the the expression that I guess says it pretty succinctly is when a family when anyone was going to take a picture was smile for the camera it's like what if i didn't feel like it but i didn't feel like i had a choice back then because i had to fit into my family and belong and be loved so in order to be loved and accepted and belong and fit in i had to smile for the camera so i look at pictures of myself as a kid and there's this uh, blank eating grin on my face that's pretty consistent through the years and I don't think it, it always reflected 
my essence, my my authentic self. So I've had I've had to learn that balance between the the pleasure of interacting with others and being social and being out there and the balance of just needing time to to just be with myself and and be uh look inward. And Andy, you you mentioned that although you are introverted, you do have extroverted skills. And so I think it's just interesting for listeners to consider that while we might be good at one of these, it can also not be in alignment with our essence and our true nature. Right. And it's really important to piggyback on that and say that you don't learn the skill when you break the pattern. Patterns are compulsive automatic. And once you break the the need to act out the pattern, the emotional and physical connection to the pattern, you still have the skill and you can use the pattern uh, rather than have the pattern use you. Ooh, say that again, Andy. <laughs> well, I'll give you no, I'll give you a specific example in terms of being a teacher. And I share this with my students very often during the week sometime. I have a pattern of hypervigilance of looking around, make sure everything's, you know, what's going on, is it safe, are people taken care of. So that's a wonderful skill for me to use when I'm teaching the process, to be aware of what's going on in the room, what 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 do you need, what is they what do they need, uh, how do I make sure they're safe, you know, what patterns are showing up, and how do I address that. So I use that skill during the week. When I go home, it's like I retract antenna from my head so that I can just relax and be with my wife and people I care about and not be always looking around and, and having to, uh, to look for danger and point out patterns. The conscious choice to use a pattern in service of the situation uh, whatever it calls for, is a kind of presence and a kind of choice as opposed to the pattern emerging compulsively, automatically, that hypervigilance showing up when you don't want it to show up. Right. And and very often what I hear is that patterns that help people, and I'm going to generalize a little bit here and say, especially men, be the patterns that help men be successful in business do not serve them in being successful in an intimate relationship. Do you have examples of that in your own life? <laughs> <laughs> because, Andy, I think it's important to understand, can you share a little bit about the work you and Joannina have done and this chapter in your life more recently, which has really been about intimate partnership? You mentioned Joannina. Joannina is my wife. Joanina Wyckoff. We initially met about 32 years ago, and we kind of saw each other in passing for 20 years before, I guess you could say the timing is right. She might say, I grew up, but we did not consider each other potential partners for 20 years. And then something, the timing was right. And uh, we got together. I was, what, 60? She was 63. And we fell in love and we had a couple of years where we had to deal with some patterns on both sides, what I'd call family karma. And then we, uh, we got married and that was in 2014. And we continued to, to see relationship as both a growth path and a spiritual path. And it's not always easy because 
frankly, she's smarter than me in a lot of ways. And uh, I don't always like that. <laughs> so. Well, I was thinking the accountability of partnership is so much about where the uh, rubber meets the road, isn't it? Yes. And she, she holds me to an accountability that sometimes uh, my dark side is not thrilled about. You mentioned dark side, Andy, and a uh, story goes that you actually have named your dark side. <laughs> yes, yes. My dark side's name is Spike. And occasionally, in fact, two weeks ago when I was teaching, I got to do the lead the piece where we draw the dark side and I got to draw Spike and he's just, just as spiky as always uh, on paper. You know, we're human. We all are born into a common humanity where we learn patterns. And as we describe in the process, the dark side is the energy system of all the patterns that takes us back to the past. It doesn't change or learn or grow. And we have to be vigilant about it. I don't mean obsessed, but still aware. We have to be aware and present. You used that word earlier and accountable for when I'm going on automatic, for when I'm, I'm, I'm acting out an obsolete identity. That's when Joanina is very present to point that out. And I have to surrender. And that, re well, I don't have to, but it works out. Thing things turn out a lot better when I surrender and listen. And I'm willing to recognize that, oh, yes, you're right, dear. I, I was being defensive or I was being argumentative. Because Spike, Spike's very legalistic, so he likes to build a case and be, be a little self-righteous. I know my, if there's any of my students listening, they can't imagine me being like that in, at any point, but my colleagues know. You know, Andy, you, your humor has always been a part of the work that you engage with in your student work and in front of the classroom. Just tell me a little bit about how humor plays a role in your life. The jokester, the prankster, the, the, the guy who's cracking funny things that make, I don't know, whenever I'm teaching with you, I always feel like I'm, I'm giggling at things you say and do. It's, it's quite fun. Well, my hope is that it, it's balanced enough so that the points, the serious points that I'm trying to make come through. But I think for me personally, it is a balance to certain patterns of possibly over-seriousness, that was my mother, and kind of fatalism and despair, which is both my parents. And my intention has been, especially in the last 13 years since I've been with Joanina, is not to use humor to deflect or to uh, minimize or to avoid, but to actually contribute to a situation. And I'm not always successful at that. And she points it out. Wait, I just want to say she points it out lovingly most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I want to shift gears a little bit and share that it wasn't until just recently, maybe a year or so ago, that I realized you wrote a, a part of the Hoffman process. And it's called I Am We Are. And it's at the very end the very last piece we do. And I want to just share a personal anecdote here. In my process all week long as a former therapist, I could not get over how all the things I just talked about 
in my sessions were actually experiences in the process. Any idea that I just batted around with my patients was actually an embodied cellular journey in the process. And I felt that throughout the week, and I felt it so fully in that last experience because we could share about leaving and goodbye and whatever that's like. Notice what you're feeling. Say goodbye to your classmates. Our work is complete here. And yet what you created on that last day in that last session is such a, a physical example of what students are experiencing, that every time I lead it or I'm witnessing it, I'm just struck by how wonderful and powerful it is that they are embodying the experience of ending their week. Tell me a little bit about how you got to the place that you wrote this beautiful piece. Wow. Well, first of all, thank you for telling me how it impacted you. I, I never know what what the impact of what we do is in, of a lot of the specifics. And, you know, that piece is kind of close to my heart. So I appreciate that, Drew. So I think it was about 1997, and uh, I was married to someone else at the time, and she was also working for the Hoffman Institute as a registrar. So she'd come up the first day and the last day. And she came to a process and at the end, and we went home. And we were talking about it, and she said, you know, there was something about this group that, that felt they felt kind of sticky with each other. And it looked like it didn't, there was something off about it. And we talked about it. And the next process I was teaching is Wisconsin. And we got towards the end, and I asked uh, one of the other teachers, or asked both the other teachers, I said, can I try something at the end just to, just to see how it works? They said, well, what is that? I said, it, it's basically something around in individuating to leave the process, but also feeling connected to the group and the group support. So I, I improvised this thing and I ended it you know, with this, I am, we are, which felt like a good way of stating it. And as you said, embodying it, the energy of I am and we are and, and letting the group feel that. And the other teacher said, great, write it up. So I wrote it up, and then uh, Connie Comstock helped edit it, a teacher at the time. And we, I guess they put it in the process. It's been there ever since. And it just, it just feels like a way of balancing that individual energy and the amazing group energy that's created every week that, to me, is one of the surprises of the process for most people. And an important distinction, I imagine, that as they leave one another and leave the site, that helping them understand and take back and take with them their energy and all the work that they've done. Yeah. So one, one of the things I just want to say that I, ha I say in every process to the other teachers, to whoever, and you probably heard me say this to you, whoever is going to lead that, that it's a celebration, not a dirge. Yeah, it's time to leave and you've got your own energy and you're strong in that energy and you also have this other energy that's available to you, that you are part of, that you've contributed to and that you've been contributed to. 
And how would you describe Dirge? <laughs> the Dirge is, oh, it's so sad that we're all, we were all so close and now we're leaving each other. And in fact, it's a celebration. Well, this conversation has been a hell of a celebration. I'm grateful for this time. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.